Meredith. Hi, Mary. I feel like we usually do that in the opposite order, but that's okay. So, okay. Welcome to Local Will Love You. We're trying to be better at promoting ourselves on this episode by asking our listeners at the beginning of the episode to please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts because it helps us a lot. And we usually say it at the end of the episode, but probably most people don't listen all the way to the end of the episode. Before we get into this interview, we're just asking politely for you to support us in giving us a rating or telling your friends about our podcast. That's all. That and maybe subscribing. Subscribing is big. Okay, guys. We are continuing our interview series. It's an interview series, I'm calling it. And I like it. With our next guest, oh my gosh, it's Greg Cott. He wrote Learning How to Die. He's written six books, actually. He wrote Learning How to Die, which is a book about Wilco. And he also wrote I'll Take You There about Native Staples and the Staples Singers. We get into both of those books a bit. He's a longtime Chicagoan co-host of Sound Opinions, which is on Chicago Public Radio. It's also findable on podcast apps, soundopinions.org. They've got a Patreon. He and Jim Deragatis that he co-hosts the podcast with. They've had good guests, you guys. They've had Wilco. They've had Radiohead. They've had Yoko Ono, Tom Petty. My goodness, gosh, you guys. He's fantastic at what he does. And we're so excited to share this interview with you because he's got stories. Huh, Mary? Definitely. Stories that our listeners are going to absolutely love because we love them. Yep. They're going to blow your mind because our minds are blown. We've already done the interview. That's the trick. We're telling you now because we know the future. We're talking to you from the future. Because it's our past, if that makes sense. And it should. You guys know that by now. You guys know how podcasts work by now, you guys. Okay, without further delay, let's get to it. Here's Mr. Greg Cox. Hey, Greg. Hey, how are you guys doing? Doing just fine. Happy to have you. Glad to be here. Indeed. Yeah. I got my wine. Oh, lovely. Yeah, it's a chill time. Smart. Gotta have some Wilco wine. Wilco wine. Do they make that? It seems like a possibility that they would. (laughs) It's inevitable. It is. Once you're in the business a certain amount of time, you got to have a winery, right? Isn't that part of the deal? Yeah. Rather than real estate, invest in a winery. You know what I could see? I could see Jeff doing like, a, what are those called? They're these like non-alcoholic drinks. I know he likes those, but one of the like feel-good non-alcoholic drinks, like having a line. You're right. I think it would have to be non-alcoholic, I would imagine. So yes, you're correct. That would be good. I would buy so much of that. Just <laughs> get out there. That's good. Somebody would have to buy it. They've already got the little cherry tie-in. It would be perfect. The cherry ghost merch and stuff like that. You're scaring me now. You're two levels too deep for me in terms of the merch. I, I just don't don't even want to know. It's just like the Grateful Dead stole onesies for kids, you know, for little babies. And yeah. I'm just like, okay, checked out of this. <laughs> it's like, 
you want Jerry Garcia's mug on your kids onesies I it's you know it's just too much for me so yeah people do I think Wilco has onesies as well a t-shirt is good that's it band merch I like a t-shirt you know yeah yeah but Fugazi never made t-shirts so I, even that's not essential yeah there you go all right so you've written books about at the very least Wilco and Mavis Staples I don't know what you've got in the works or what you've maybe done before to less fanfare what inspired you to write about those two? I've actually written six books. You've named the first and the last, the most recent book that I did. Uh, the Wilco book was the first one. The reason I wrote the Wilco book was a lot of people viewed it as sort of a biography and they reviewed it as such, which is fine. There's definitely biographical information in there about Wilco and Jeff and his background in Uncle Tupelo, et cetera. But as much as I admired what the band was doing musically at the time, I thought their story, it told a bigger story. I tried to tell a bigger story in the book, contextualizing what they were doing as a band in this environment where you make a really adventurous record and your record company says, nope, we're not going to release it. And in decades past, that would have been a death knell for a lot of bands. But for Wilco, it was just an impetus to sort of say, well, we're going to put the record out one way or another. We really don't need this record company to do it. They ended up putting it up on the web for free and toured behind the record once they got the rights to the record back from the label. To me, that was like a key moment. It was really a transition period between the 20th century music business, which to me was an antiquated, very corporate controlled environment where bands had to like basically come hat in hand to a bunch of suits in New York or LA and say, please put my record out loan us some money so that we can be even further in debt to put that record out. And Wilco was among the bands that sort of saw that there was a 21st century coming up that would not need to use these sort of outdated corporations as a middleman in getting the music to their fans. So I thought that was a really important moment. And I thought I could tell that story really well using Yankee Hotel Foxtrot as sort of a prime example. But obviously I did a lot of things leading up to that record. And I also reported on the subsequent record, A Ghost is Born, in that book. And then Ghost is Born actually came out right around the time the book was published. So I brought their story basically up to date. They had made that transition from a band that was beholden to the record industry, the old-fashioned record industry, to a band who had sort of paved a path towards the new world. And to me, that was at least as much of an impetus to write the book as it was to tell the band's story from a musical perspective. And then the Mavis Staples book, that was published in 2014, which was 10 years after the Wilco book. When the Wilco book was published in 2004, it was well-received in terms of both reviews and also sales. It did really well. And the publishers and my agent were basically like within months, they were saying, well, what's your next book? We really want another book from you. And I said, I want to do a book on Mavis Staples and the Staples Singers, because I felt I could tell that story really well. They were Chicago-based. I knew everybody in the group. I had interviewed them many times already. And I said, it's a really important group. I'd love to do a book on that. And my agent knew them, but the publishers in New York City, who were much like the record industry of the 20th century, they anoint you or they don't. And they didn't anoint that book. They said, we don't know who she is. We don't know who they are. Oh, wow. We don't, want, we don't want to publish that book. They basically slapped me down and they said, don't do that book. That is so and, wild. Uh, it really, it's astonishing, right? But at that time, they were really kind of out of the public limelight. Mavis had just released her first solo record. Mm -hmm. Staples Singers had essentially broken up when Pop Staples, her dad, died. 
she was devastated. It took her two years to get back on her feet and basically start making music again. But she self-financed that first record, much in the same way that Wilco kind of started to operate, DIY, you know, do it yourself. You don't rely on anybody else to do it for you. But Mavis's situation was very different because she was a woman in her 60s, a woman of color in her 60s at that point. You couldn't have written a worse script for the music industry as it was then constructed and currently constructed to put out a record by that person. Why would we want to do that? We're looking for young, younger, youngest, and we're looking for pop commodification. So Mavis didn't fit in, but she pulled herself up by the bootstraps and kind of did it and kept working. And I kept plugging. I kept plugging. I want to do this. I did a bunch of other books in that period of time. But I kept saying, I want to do this book. I want to do this book. And I kept mentioning to my agent and he kept pitching it. Finally, almost a decade later, a bunch of publishers said, hey, wasn't she on Jay Leno last night? Wasn't she on Conan? Gee, I saw her on Saturday Night Live. And suddenly they knew who she was. <laughs> oh, yeah, that'd be cool. You know, she looks really cool. That's fantastic. I said, you don't know the half of it. Oh, man. I mean, what, what an amazing story, right? And so I was able to write the book then. Just like Jeff and Wilco, full cooperation, no editorial control. I was able to write the book I wanted to write. But again, it wasn't just a book about Mavis and the Staples, who I think were a crucial group in the development of gospel music into soul, into the civil rights movement, into protest music, but also the broader story that their tale told about the diaspora of Black people from the South, from the plantations to the North. Pops came from a plantation as a sharecropper to the North and brought this melding of gospel and blues into his music, which was revolutionary at the time, formed this group with his kids, which was again revolutionary at the time, and basically changed the world. You know, I mean, they were in the last waltz with the band. They influenced Elvis Presley. They influenced John Fogarty, borrowed riffs from them, the Rolling Stones, you name it, they revolutionized it. And then... Mavis went on to a solo career, which the advantage of doing the book a little later was that by then she had already started establishing her solo career. And I can't think of an artist, again, a woman of color in her 60s and now 70s, who basically reinvented herself as a solo artist after being part of this group for 40 years and had as much success as a solo artist as she did with the original group. I mean, you can count the artists who have done that on two hands, basically, at most. Think about it. Usually you have this grunt of great music and then things change and your music goes out of fashion or you become a state fair act where you're performing your greatest hits for a bunch of old people in a fairground. And Mavis didn't do that. She's still relevant. She's still making records. And the nice little final twist was that she ended up making records with Jeff Tweedy. So sort of brought the whole story full circle. Yeah, he wrote some absolutely beautiful songs for her too. Absolutely. All kinds of stuff. They call her Grandma Mavis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I got a story about that, too. So when I mentioned that she put out her solo record in 2004, by this time, I'd gotten to know Mavis really well. I'd interviewed her a bunch, even when the staples were still going, and her family. I knew them all. So when Mavis put out that solo record, I was all over it. And I said, listen, I do this radio show, Sound Opinions. And uh, she goes, oh, I've seen that. And actually she'd seen it because we were doing a TV version of it at the time too. But anyway, we were on a commercial music station at that time, XRT, which was doing our show before we went over to public radio. And I said, listen, I want to have you on the show and I want you to do a live event for us. I want to put you on a stage and we're going to 
broadcast the show from the stage and you're going to perform. And she goes, well, I don't really have a band right now. And I said, well, let me figure that out. I'll figure something out. But are you in? She goes, yeah, absolutely. I want to do this. So, okay. Then we booked Millennium Park, right? So they had an off night in the summer. Perfect. We got the night. We got Mavis. We got the show set up to do it. We broadcast live on a Tuesday night. We're going to do this as a live event. And then I said, okay, who's the band? I talked to Jeff. I knew that he liked the Staple Singers. I knew that he knew who they were. And I knew that he knew who Mavis was and that they lived in Chicago. Mavis lived in Chicago. She's lived in the same condo on the lakefront in the South Side since 1970. So he was really proud of that. And he was like, wow, he was blown away. He couldn't believe that I asked him to perform with Mavis Staples. He just revered her, you know. At the same time, he had cold feet. He said, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I'm, I'm worthy of Mavis Staples is basically what he said. I mean, he wanted to do it. He wanted to have the band back her up. But he says, I don't know if we can do this. And he basically pulled out. He basically said, I just, I don't think I can do it. But I said, one day we're going to get you and Mavis together. You know, now is maybe not the time. I don't want to push you to do something. Well, come on right out and say, he was scared. Wasn't going to do it. He just, it wasn't because he didn't think he could do it. It was he was scared to do it. So I reached out to another friend of ours, Robbie Folks, And he was right on it. Robbie's like, I'm doing this. And he was great. Did a great job. We pulled it off. He basically rehearsed with her a couple of times. He's fantastic. I said, Mavis, how'd that go? He goes, she, he was great. He knew my music inside and out better than I did. You know, it was a great night. I still felt bad about, you know, Jeff and Mavis. But lo and behold, Mavis is looking for a producer for her next record after she did one with Ry Cooter. I said, you really ought to talk to Jeff. Just give him a call sometime and see what he thinks. But he goes, oh, yeah, Jeff Tweedy would want to produce me. I, I said, Give him a call, see what happens. Her manager ended up calling Jeff's manager and they hooked it up. I said, how'd that go with Jeff? They finally met. He goes, that boy, he was so quiet. He didn't say anything. I had to get him to talk. <laughs> he was just like, and I go, I think he was starstruck. He was just kind of like, you know, in awe of the whole thing. But it was kind of cool that they developed that friendship. Obviously a very close bond because Mavis has to trust you before she will entrust her voice and her music to you and she trusted jeff and it's really wonderful that they were able to do i think they've done like three records together and i think jeff also helped put out pops's solo record the last solo record that pops is working on that was a real sign of mavis's faith in him that she entrusted him with those recordings and saying you know can you do something with these and they got that record out it really came around full circle and jeff wouldn't have got there if it hadn't been for sue his wife yeah and that's another story. But I, I knew Sue Miller long before I ever met Jeff. She'd been booking shows in Chicago forever. Uh-huh. She was at the Cubby Bear in the West End. So I knew her from those days. And then she came over to Lounge Acts and I got to know her very well. And she said, you got to come and review this band, Uncle Tupelo. I said, I don't know. They're all right. And she just kept on it and on. And finally, she said, can you just meet Jeff? Little did I know that they were starting to date and all this stuff. Anyway, I did meet Jeff and I liked him. He's a very nice guy. And I... I ended up loving what Wilco was doing, starting with the Being There record. So that was kind of the impetus for my starting to dig a little deeper into what this band was about. But Mavis, being able to write that book was just a gigantic privilege. I'm so glad that that story is out there and people know more about her. I had very little to do with that, but in terms of being able to document what she's done, it's so cool. I just love her to death. She's one of the nicest, most gracious people I've ever met, and it couldn't happen to a nicer person. And I totally understand why somebody like Jeff would want to work with her because she's really an amazing person beyond just being 
a groundbreaking singer and musician. She's just an incredible person. So she knew my daughters very well. Let's put it that way. My daughters adore her. And it was all just like, you know, she's one of those people that she's so warm. There's nothing like it. I can't even describe it. It's almost people just have that. They radiate that warmth and friendliness. And she she absolutely has that. We're so lucky as Chicagoans to have her alive and well and able to smell the roses. She's really enjoying this part of her life and her career. Yeah, you're absolutely lucky to have her. So glad that that book came into the world, that you brought it into the world. What incredible stories. We're absolute huge Mavis Staples fans. So it was really fun to hear you share so much about Mavis. Yeah, my pleasure. I could talk about Mavis all day. She's just so great. So back to Wilco after that detour. That was wonderful and perfect and so appreciated. Do you have a favorite Wilco song or album? That's a tough one to answer. I mean, I would say Yankee Hotel Foxtrot is right up there. I just thought that was a absolutely brilliant record and it still holds up incredibly well. That's an amazing record. My favorite song, there's a number of songs on that record that are my favorites, but I really like, it's the Woody Guthrie record, the first one, the Mermaid Avenue record. Oh, yeah. Well, I think it's more about, it's not so much the song, because I guess if you're asking about recording versus song, there are songs that Jeff has written that I think are really brilliant. The music was primarily his thing on the Woody Guthrie record, what they did with Billy Bragg. You know, Jeff primarily and Jay Bennett writing a lot of the music for, for the Wilco related stuff there. And Bragg, I think, had some role in it, but I think this is pretty much a Jeff Jay thing. That song, One by One, yeah. that they did, it's kind of a, yeah. not like one of their more well-known songs. The Wilco stuff on that record is great. And Jeff was joking one time we were talking. He says, I, I think this record is what people expect Wilco to sound like all the time. <laughs> like he thought that was like the the alt country Belleville boy kind of graduates would make a record like that. That's the kind of record they would make in perpetuity. So mm -hmm. he kind of views it as sort of like a little bit of an outlier because by then they did sort of moved well beyond that, right? With Summer Teeth and Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. But around that time, that performance by Jeff just freaking blows me away. I just think that's a beautiful song. He picked that lyric, like, I want to do this one. Yeah. He totally owned it. Yeah. I mean, I'm so glad for Woody's legacy that they were able to pull that out of the archive and say, this song deserves to be heard. Because mm -hmm. you know, it was just lyrics. You know, Woody didn't get around to getting that recorded as a song yet. Yeah. So, yeah, that to me is just like, I put that song on and I'm just in that space. I just think it's beautiful. Heartbreakingly beautiful. That's a great answer. We'd love to know because it's it's just fun to hear because Wilco's such a supporter of other music and other bands and they bring lesser known artists on tour and they make their end of year listening playlists and stuff. And we always like to ask our guests, like, what are you listening to these days? I know as a journalist, you're probably listening to a lot of different things and maybe not necessarily things that you love. But if there's anything you've just been enjoying lately, we'd love to hear about it. No, great. I love to talk about that. You know, with Sound Opinions, we're reviewing new stuff all the time. And that's one of the joys of my life. I love learning about new music all the time. I think the curiosity is the key to being a worthwhile music writer, music journalist, critic, whatever. And it's funny because Jeff and I used to have discussions all the time about new music. His head was always in the game. He was always listening. He did some music criticism back in his early days, too. I think 
for zine. Might have been St. Louis zine. Anyway, he's very attentive to new stuff. But there's so many records out this year that I've loved. I'm a big fan of a group called Everything But The Girl. Basically, they had a bunch of great records in the 80s and 90s, and that took like 19 years off to their husband and wife. And they basically had like three kids, so they took some a bunch of time off, but they just came out with a new record that's really great. Uh, Margot Price, I think, is one of the gigantic new talents that's out there. Everything she's put out has been incredible. She's another artist that sort of gets typecast as country-ish. Right. But she's way, way beyond that moniker. There's a woman named Sunny War, Sunny War, that has a record called Anarchist Gospel, which is amazing. Another one of my favorite records, Boy Genius. Everybody's talking about them, but I, you know, we've had Phoebe Bridgers and Lucy Dacus on the show. I interviewed them both for the Tribune when I was working there. Julian Baker's great. Having those three songwriters together is incredible. I have to say that the EP that they put out a few years ago, just six songs, two each, is song for song as good as any record that came out that year. And the new one's pretty good. It's called The Record, right? It's a good record. It's not as good as the six-song EP, song for song, but it's really good. Iris Dement, Mm. another sort of gospel singer. I love her, love everything about her. I did one of the first interviews she gave when she got signed in the early 90s, and I just think she's the best. Yeah. Uh, she did a duet record uh, or duet song with John Prine. She has a couple just like heartbreaking, beautiful songs. Oh. I'm so glad you brought her up. That's, She's great. Yeah. And this new record of hers, Working on a World, mm-hmm. is, you know, right now it's like one of the top 10 records of the year for me. Yeah. I mean, there's so much stuff. I'm just going through. I make a playlist. It's a running playlist of songs that I love from the year. And I've got 53 songs so far for my 2023 list of songs that I love, which is just representative stuff from albums that I really like. This band Wednesday from Asheville, North Carolina, really, really good band. And last but not least, there's this group from Ireland that sort of puts a new twist on traditional Irish music called Lancome. Mm-hmm. Really amazing. You guys familiar with that show, P.T. Blinders? I've heard of yes. it. Got to check it out. I mean, you'll either love it or hate it. It's pretty intense and violent. At the same time, it's also historical. Anyway, the music on that show alone is worth the price of admissions. But anyway, they fit right in with that show in terms of the vibe that they create. So Perfect. Well, we got to check that out for sure. You've had so many wonderful things to share. Thank you so much for being our guest today. Uh, continued good fortune with your podcast, and I appreciate you asking me to be a part of it. Thank you. It's been an absolute joy. We appreciate you giving us so many great stories and it's been really, really nice to have you on. Likewise. Thanks guys. Appreciate it. Oh, what a treasure he is. Yeah, that was fantastic. And we got Mavis stories. Oh my gosh. I mean, he said he could keep going with Mavis stories. So I, (laughs) I would love to hear more of those Mavis stories. That was a treasure to hear about. Maybe we need to yeah. do this podcast. <laughs> but yeah, Greg just has so much knowledge and history with the band. And it was really just special to hear his stories. The fact that he knew Sue before he knew Jeff, that's pretty amazing that he's kind of been there since the beginning. And yeah, uh, yeah. As yeah. a hardcore Sue fan, I loved that. There you go. 
I was like, yeah, yeah, that's right. She was the one who got him to interview with Jeff. That's amazing. And then now we have his fantastic book and we have other books. And so we're going to have to check those out. Yeah, um, about to go down more of a rabbit hole than I already have. So yeah, should we talk about where you can find Greg's work? I think at his website. Yeah. So that's just gregcott.com. That's K-O-T. And that's where he has links to just about everything. There's also sound opinions wherever you get podcasts. They also have a Patreon. The book that he wrote, again, he didn't write the Wilco book. That's a different thing. He wrote Learning How to Die about Wilco. And it's wonderful. And he also wrote, I'll take you there about the staple singers. And that was the one that he was referencing on the podcast that has been on my to read list for a long time. But you know what? I think it's going to bypass a lot of other books and go to the top of my list. Yeah, (laughs) I love Mavis. and It was really fantastic to talk to Greg. I mean, even just the way he was talking made me feel like I would really love to read his books. So, yeah. Yeah, he's super great. That's it. In the meantime, just remember that Wilco will love you. They will. They will. Will. (laughs) They have to. All right, Mary. Bye. Bye, Meredith. Wilco Will Love You is co-hosted by me, Mary McLean Mellis. And me, Meredith Hobbs-Coons. It is edited by Greta Stromquist and Meredith Hobbs-Coons and hosted by Simplecast with theme music by Adam Nash. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode.